I think it's appropriate to probably give you a little bit of a ramp up here to give you a theme of what we'll be talking about today. And we're talking about um, the idea or the theme or the concept of witness or a representative today. That's really the main thing that comes out of the text. And um, we see this early on in the book of Acts. We see it very early in the book of Acts. In fact, it's what Jesus tells his disciples in verse 8 of chapter 1. It's probably on the screen for you. That Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He's talking to his apostles. And you will be my witnesses. Key word, key theme, key idea in the book of Acts. Witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And as we've seen and discussed so many times, that verse provides the map for the book of Acts. Witnesses of Jesus go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And as that happens, the world is changed. And first that happens with the apostles, and then as we see, a man named Paul or Saul of Tarsus gets wrapped up into this Jesus movement. And in Acts 22, as he reflects on it and what's happened to him in his own conversion, then he will say this in verses 14 and 15. He says, Then then he said, talking about Ananias, the guy who told him the gospel, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear, his, hear words from his mouth. You will be his, key word again, witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. So the, the uh, instruction that's given to the apostles we see is also given to the apostle Paul. And in 1 Corinthians he'll talk about himself as one untimely born, meaning that he's like a 13th apostle. Jesus showed up to him and gave him the same commendation. And more than that, in his own conversion, in Acts 9, we see in verse 15, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. So Paul here is selected as a witness. And not just a witness to tell anybody, but he has a particular calling in that he has a, a job that is going to be going to the highest levels of government. It's going to happen, as we uh, see, to the Gentiles and to Israel and to the Gentile kings. That Paul is somebody who goes to share the gospel on the lowest levels of society and the highest levels of society. That is his job as a witness. And why is this significant? Why is it important to have a witness? It's a... Uh, it's significant to point out because we're actually in the middle of this happening in the book of Acts. Last week and the week before, there were the, the first and second of actually five or six episodes of Paul being a witness for Jesus. Or another way to say it is giving his defense, and that's probably the way it's lined out in your own Bible. Uh, it's kind of broken up in terms of Paul's defenses. And so the first one that we saw was that he gives a defense or a witness to Jesus as he goes into Jerusalem for the final time of his life. He knows that he's going to die. He doesn't know if it's in Jerusalem or after. But he goes in, and the mob comes and attacks him, drags him out of the temple, and then what does he do? He stands up and he witnesses to the crowd about Jesus. That's the first. The second, right after that, he's dragged into the Sanhedrin by the Roman tribune and to uh, give an account and talk to everybody. And he says, can I stand up and say something? And he does the same thing. He stands up and again gives a defense for himself and really the gospel. 
And that's the second. So today we actually see the third and fourth rounds of this happening. That Paul will stand up before the Roman governor of the Judean region, Felix, and then his successor, Festus. And then next week, to give you a hint of it, next week will be the fifth installment of that where he stands up before King Agrippa. And so what Jesus said of his apostles, and certainly true of Paul, that he will stand up before the Jews, Israel, which he did in Jerusalem, before the Gentiles, which he did in all of his missionary journeys, and certainly before kings, as next week he stands up before King Agrippa. And there is somewhat of a, an argument, you could say, that there are six rounds of this, and you should have it lined out, uh, that there, there, is, there is arguably a sixth round of it where Paul is going to Rome to argue before Caesar. And why is all this important? Why, is, why do I tell you that? It's for this reason. Paul is on trial. He's a witness for Jesus. And it's important that he's a witness for Jesus because besides just sharing the gospel, which everyone would say, yes, Jesus, that's the right answer, the important thing here for Paul, especially in this chapter and the next, is that Jesus is not physically present. He's not bodily present. So how do people know him? How do people hear him? How do people see him? How do people hear this good news and recognize that it is true? They do it by his witnesses. And that's what Paul is. That's what Christians are. That Paul here is left in a Roman judgment to show the world who Jesus is, what Christianity is like. And it's a very important time in history for this to happen. You see, up to this point, what, what had happened? Jesus came, obscure Jewish carpenter in Galilee called the, the, the armpit of the Roman Empire. Nobody liked this place, right? So all of a sudden now, Paul is standing before kings. Christianity has changed dramatically in the last 30 years here in the book of Acts to where it was totally obscure, then sweeping over Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, now the ends of the earth. Now, now it's actually come up to Rome. Christianity is right under Rome's nose, and Rome has to make a decision. Who are Christians? What do they believe? Are they a danger to society? And there's all kinds of questions that people had back then and they still have now about Christianity and about Jesus, about his followers. And we see this in today's passage that that these questions, they're, they're everywhere. In fact, the accusations are everywhere. Who, what are Christians like? Are they, are they lawbreakers? Are they immoral? Are they people that can be trusted? Are they people that are heretics? It's part of the Jews' argument. And so whether it's Paul's day or ours, whether it's Paul being a witness or a representative or us being a witness or a representative, we're in the same boat. Today, just like then, there are generations of people that every new generation have to give an account for who Jesus is and what he's doing in the world and what he will do. So that's what Paul's doing, and we're, we're wrapped up into it with him. Paul is a representative. And, and uh, I couldn't, when I was going over this, I couldn't help but think of uh, an episode from my own life. I remember some years ago, different, different one, not around here, but going to Lowe's, the ultimate hardware handyman store, and, and uh, looking around for something for quite some time, and I couldn't find it, which is really, really something you don't want to admit as a man. 
And so uh, I couldn't find what I, I don't even remember what it was, some tool or some some pipe or something. I can't remember. But I was looking, I couldn't find it. And so I eventually just have to bite down and do it. And I go to ask a store representative where I can find said tool and also give him my man card. And and um, by the time I had worked up the, the nerve to do it, I go to ask this guy who's stocking shelves. And, uh, and he turns and looks at me and says, I don't know, you find it. I don't work here. And I thought, you're wearing the red and blue vest. You're in Lowe's. You're stocking things. You're a Lowe's employee, so help me out here. And, uh, and he, it turns out he wasn't. He was just, a, uh, just somebody who was pl- supplying resources for Lowe's, and so he actually didn't work at Lowe's. He was just, uh, just dropping off some materials. And, and uh, that still kind of bugs me as I think about it because I know it's not true, but for, for that second I thought, you are a Lowe's employee, you represent Lowe's, and you're not willing to help me? You're dead to me. Lowe's is dead to me. I will never shop at Lowe's again. And that, of course, didn't stay true. I have many times shopped at Lowe's. Enjoy being a homeowner. But that, that sort of thing happens to us all the time, that we see someone and we instantly recognize that they're a representative of an organization or, um, or a company or something. It happens with officers all the time, police officers. What do you do? You have bad experience with one. You say, all police officers are bad. Or you have a good experience. All police officers are good. Uh, we do it in restaurants. When you go to a new restaurant and you have a, uh, a poor waiter or waitress, what do you do? Oh, this restaurant's not going to make it. It's no, it's no good. I bet the f- food here is horrible. Management, come on. We do the same thing, and we do it in our own lives with our own jobs. You know that when you go somewhere under the name of kind of your company or your, your organization, that you represent not just yourself, but the organization, the company. And that informs how you act. It informs the, the words that come out of your mouth and the, the conduct that you give. And it's the same with Paul. It's the same with us. And so here's the main point for today, that Christians represent Jesus to the world. Christians have that job. Christians represent Jesus to the world. And we'll go through three different ways that we see Paul exemplifying this. Three ways that he shows us what it means to be a witness to the world. And the first is that Christians must answer the world's accusations. Chapter 24, verse 1, And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, and they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, he's talking about Felix, and since by you, by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything to which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in the charge affirming that all these things were so. So what's happening here? We, we see that Paul is in custody of the Roman governor, Felix, and the Jews who uh, try to kill him in the mob and then in the Sanhedrin come up to 
the region uh, that Felix is in to, to, try to try to lynch him still. They can't do it originally. And so now they, they try to use subterfuge and they try to, try to assassinate him. We saw last week. And this time they say, you know, okay, we can't do it plainly. Let's just go. Let's go and use the legal system. And so what did they do? They don't come up and talk themselves. They don't bring their own charges. They, hire, they have a hired gun, don't they? They have an attorney. And not just any attorney. They have Tertullus, which is probably one of the best attorneys in their world. And how does he begin? There's actually a phrase that, that was very common. It's a... Uh, um, Captatio benevolentiae, and it's a way of beginning to say to the judge or to the ruler, let me win over your goodwill. I know you're, you're so generous, you're such a good ruler. What's he doing as he's doing that? He's buttering him up, isn't he? He's talking to him and he says, you're just such an amazing ruler. You do justice all the time. You help us, you help everybody. You're such a great guy. And you love to stamp out injustice. Well, here's somebody before us who's an unjust man. What, what are you going to do about it? And, and so he's really buttering him up to try to get the response that he wants. But is this true? Is, is Felix really this, this um, individual, this kind ruler who, who does so much for society and so many social reforms? And the answer is no, absolutely not. Felix, if you didn't know anything about him, was one of the worst governors in the Judean region that ever existed. Everybody hated this guy. Uh, there was constant warring between the Sanhedrin, the Jewish High Council, and Felix. They constantly butt heads. They, uh, the Sanhedrin would constantly report Felix to Rome. Felix would report them to Rome. They was constant in fighting and arguing. And so this is the only time probably in their life when they came to Felix and said, you know what? We can't talk about this man this well, so we're going to hire someone to do it for us. <laughs> and that's what happens. And so they make this argument and try to butter him up and condemn Paul. And Felix, Felix, what does he do here? He'll just kind of listen to it. I imagine he has a huge grin on his face as he's just watching all the Sanhedrin kind of turn in their seats about what's being said about him. And then Paul will make his defense and before he makes his defense, he'll actually respond in his defense to three accusations. And I'll just give them to you straight off. The first is sedition. Second, sectarianism. And the third is sacrilege. Sedition is the first claim that Tertullus gives. And really he's saying that Paul is bad. He's, he's a lawbreaker. You see, he's somebody that is treasonous to the crown. He's someone who, who rolled into Jerusalem and he's stirring up riots. And he's bad. He's a bad dude. He causes riots everywhere he goes. And, and so the argument is that he is a seditionist. He's against Rome. And then, if you can pull it out, there's a sectarianism bit saying that, that Paul is also a heretic. He's not just a lawbreaker, but he's a heretic in our own nation, in our own Jewish people. What does he say? That he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, the Nazarenes were a group of uh, kind of Jewish people that were on the extreme side of things. Uh, they, had, they had guys that would go up and knife Roman soldiers all day long. And so to mention that to a Roman official would be like, oh, he's one of those guys? 
We've been trying to get those guys gone a long time. Um, and so he would naturally just kind of fold in and say, well, yeah, he's a, he's a Nazarene, part of the sect of the Nazarenes. We've got to get rid of him. And that's the claim that he is not only a seditionist, but he's also a sectarianist, that he's a part of this dangerous, dangerous, volatile group of society. And he's got to be put down. Third argument is sacrilege, that Paul here, what does he say? That he profaned the temple. He profaned the temple. That's another way of saying that he's against God. If you mess with the temple, you mess with God. And there's only one way you could really do this. Years ago before this, a few generations before, there was, there was uh, an episode called the Maccabean Revolt. Um, actually, more than a few generations in the kind of uh, 400 silent years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what came out of that was that Rome just conquered the Jews. I mean, conquered Jerusalem, and they revolted. And in response, Rome gave the Jews one legal ability for capital punishment, only one. And that was if Gentiles came into the temple courts, the inner courts. If that happened, then for the Jews... The temple would be defiled, and they could immediately carry out execution on a Gentile. That's the only way. And so what does Tertullus say here? He says that he profaned the temple. And what he's saying is that Paul walked into the temple with Gentiles. Now, technically, Paul did go in with Gentiles, but in the outer courts, not the inner courts. So Tertullus is very, very slippery here. And so it's half true, but the reality is that Paul is not against God. He's not sacrilegious in the least bit. So we see that the argument really is that Paul is against Rome, he's against Jews, and he's against God. But is that the case? No, absolutely not the case. What we see is that Paul responds totally different than Tertullus. In, chapter, in uh, verse 10 he says, When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation. I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up the crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. So the first thing Paul says is, it's not true. You can say what you want, but let me recall the facts. And let's not butter it up. You're a Roman governor. Thank you for governing. I know you've been here a long time. But he doesn't, he doesn't ingratiate himself before Felix, does he? He just comes in and says, here's the truth. I don't need to defend myself. Here's what's happening. And then he'll answer each one of the claims. For sedition, he says, I've been in Jerusalem 12 days. How could I rise up a, a revolution in 12 days? It doesn't make sense. For the sectarian bit, he'll say that uh, in verse 14 and 16, he says, that the sect I'm actually a part of is the sect called the Way, as people began to call Christianity the Way originally. So he says, I'm not a Nazarene. I'm not a sect of the Nazarene. I don't go around assassinating and knifing Roman soldiers. That's not how I operate. I'm a part of a group of people called Christians or the Way, and we follow Jesus. And that's really the sect that I'm a part of. And then he, he'll say that... Um, that the whole point of this is to have hope in God. So he's not somebody that, that's just a radical. He's not bad for society. 
And the third response in verses 17 and 21, we won't read it, but he really just says, how could I be sacrilegious if I came bringing money to support the temple? Which he did. He brought in alms, he says in verse 17, to my nation and to present offerings. He said, I'm not sacrilegious. I came in with a lot of money to help, to help the temple, to help the Jewish people, to help the church. And more than that, He'll say, it's not just that he brought money, but that he worships God with what? A clean conscience. Here's a man who is more devout than anyone else standing in that room. And they know it. The Jewish leaders know it. And so Paul's arguments are really one-to-one, no, it's not true. I'm not a seditionist. I'm not a sectarianist. I'm not sacrilegious. I am somebody who's good for the government. I'm a law-abiding citizen. I am somebody who's good for my community. I contribute and help in our community. And I'm somebody who worships God with a sound conscience. And that's really what's happening here with Paul. And it's important for us for this reason and this point, that Christians must answer the world's accusations. You see, the accusations brought against Paul are that He's bad for society and everything like we've said. There are questions out there in the world at this time. Who are Christians? What are they like? How do they operate? And Paul has to open his mouth and confront them. He has to step forward and he has to tell them to people. And there's tons of examples I could give you, but in the early early, uh, church, Christians, just to give you two, were seen as immoral and cannibals. You say, well, that seems strange. People don't normally think that now. Why? It's because people would leave babies on the sidewalk all the time. They wouldn't abort them, but they would have them and they'd just lay them on the sidewalk in the gutter and walk away if they didn't want them. Christians would come and pick them up and take them into their home because they knew that they were called to be a different kind of people. And so the Romans especially saw that and they were like, wait a second, I know I put a baby there yesterday. Where's the baby? And then they would hear like, oh, the Christians are actually taking it. What are they doing with these babies? Are they eating them? And that was a, a common thought back then that, they, that the Romans thought the Christians were this crazy sect of people who were cannibalists. And not only that, but Christians for communion, they would have meals, whole meals together as a community, and they would call them what? Love feasts. And so the Romans hear that and they're like, love feasts? That just sounds like an immoral gathering to me. What's going on in that house? And as they saw that, Christians had to step up, had to step forward and say, no, 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 you don't understand us right. We have to tell you. We have to answer your accusations. And it's the same with us. It goes on and on today, doesn't it? There's so many things that we could talk about, different perceptions of Christians. Christians are ignorant. They're intolerant. They're against sex. They're hostile. They're unreasonable, hypocritical, fake. All these things that people think about Christians And part of our duty as a witness is to step forward and say, no, it's not true. Things are different than you think. Christians must answer the world's accusation. That's the first point, and it's the longest. Second, Christians must strive to have a clean conscience. We see this a little bit with Paul in verse 16. He says, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And I'll just give you a question here. What if Paul didn't? What if Paul didn't strive to have a clean conscience? Then his entire way of life, his entire argument would be for nothing, wouldn't it? 
that if he actually didn't back up what he said he believed, then it'd be worthless. All his claims of Jesus as Messiah, as the one to worship, as worthy of all his attention and effort and heart would be completely meaningless. And Felix gets this in verse 22 to 23. He says uh, about Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, so Felix knows something about Christians, he put him off saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. So what, is, what does Felix do? Like every good bureaucrat, he just says, you know what? We'll talk about this at some other day. Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll just let the, the gears of the government kind of churn and uh, we'll deal with it another day. But then he gives him liberty. and lets his friends come and visit him. Why? It's because Felix knows he's innocent. He knows he's innocent. And he sees the kind of evidence in Paul's life to where he can say, it's true. This man has a clean conscience and nothing anyone can say about him removes anything that he claims. He has a clean conscience. And I think we have to really pay attention to why he has a clean conscience or why he wants to. And he says it's because of the resurrection. And we'll see this a little bit more in just a second. But Paul says that the resurrection matters to him because he knows that there will be a resurrection of not just Jesus, already has been, but of the just and the unjust. And I think we can take this to, to understand this, that Christians must strive to have a clean conscience before God and man. And if we don't, if we don't, then we're really communicating, we're really believing that there will not be a judgment. There will be no resurrection. There will be no accountability to what we do in the body. And for Paul, he says, it matters. It desperately matters. What I do, the things I say, even when we saw us last week, that doesn't mean he's perfect, but that means when he makes a mistake and he speaks out against the, great, against the high priest in the last chapter, that he says, you know what, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I didn't hear the high priest. Shouldn't speak evil of my people, uh, leaders of my people. And so he steps forward and he says, you know what? I'm going to have a clean conscience about it. I did wrong. I'm sorry. I admit it. I did wrong. Let's move on. And even in that, Paul's underlying motivation, his current, is to say, one day I'm going to stand before God. And every single thing I do, I'm going to have to say, yes, I did that. So what kind of answer am I going to give? And it creates a real fervency, a real desire in Paul to live a kind of life that not is just good for unbelievers to see, but one that will in some sense rescue him from the coming judgment, that he knows the work that Jesus has done and is doing in his life is evidence of that. Third point, the Christians not only must answer the world's accusations, strive to have a clean conscience, but also have to confront people with biblical reality. Verse 24 says that after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. 
And at the same time, he hoped the money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Paul, after he's there in Felix's house, will come to him repeatedly. Repeatedly. And what's he doing? In verse 24, that he is speaking about faith in Christ. You see, this wonderful situation unfolds where Paul is under kind of house arrest, but he's really getting to share the gospel every day with Felix and his Roman officials and the soldiers and everyone in the city. And as he does that, we see a great three-point way to share the gospel. Doesn't always happen this way, but here's a good way to do it. Here's a good way that, that Paul thought it should be done with Felix, that he talks about righteousness, self-control, and judgment. And in righteousness, Paul what? He begins with God. He says there is a righteous God. And that's so often where we have to start sharing the gospel. Like if you don't know that already, that's where you have to begin. That there is, there is a God who has a standard that everyone falls short of. He's holy and he's righteous. And at the same time, we recognize his good nature in creation and in us. That there's righteousness in the world. And then self-control, in contrast to the righteousness, that there is self-control that matters in the world. You see, as much as God is righteous and perfect and holy and loving and good and all those things, you got to turn the camera in on yourself. And it doesn't take long to see it's not the case with us, that there is a lack of self-control. And this is exactly what Felix does with Paul, um, or Paul does with Felix. He says, you know what? There's, God is righteous, and we're not righteous. Because what do we want? We want bribes. We want praise of men. We want attention. All those things are things Felix wants. And we see that Felix here, he, at some point in his weird economic uh, system, he just says, you know what? If Paul just give me money, I'll let the whole thing go. That, it just proves that he's in a situation where he knows he's wrong. He knows he's wrong. And last, the coming judgment. The thing that really alarms Felix and we can't pass over is the reality that there will be a coming judgment. There will be a coming judgment. And Felix was alarmed by it. Paul was alarmed by it. And he, he changed his life because of it. And those are biblical realities that we have to enforce with the world around us. We've got to tell them. We've got to confront people about it. That one day, I'm not saying every conversation has to be this way, but we have to tell people that one day you're going to die. And when you die, you don't go to nothing. You stand before King Jesus and you will answer him. And he will judge you. Or if you don't die and he comes back before then, you will still stand before King Jesus. And what the Bible tells us is that he will kill everyone who's opposed to him and send them to torment. And then everyone who loves him and has faith in him will come to be with him. And he'll rescue. That's a message that we have to tell people if we are going to be witnesses. So Christians, whether it's Paul or us, have to answer the world's accusations. We really have to tell people the way things are and remove all this doubt and fog about what Christians are like. We also have to have a clean conscience. If we have a clean conscience, people will see the reality it has in our lives. 
we also have to confront people with biblical reality. If we, if we have a clean conscience and we do not confront people with biblical reality, then how are they going to hear? If we, have, if we confront people with biblical reality, but we don't have a clean conscience, there will be no validity to the message. The gospel will be empty. So we have to have all of these. And as Christians, as witnesses, there's a really liberating truth about this. And maybe for you at this point, it just kind of sits heavy for you, and you think like, oh, man, that's a lot to do. Like, i gotta, I got to get to work today. It's Sunday. I should be taking a nap. What's going on? But really, really, this is a very freeing thing. Did you notice that in all this that's going on with Paul, what is he doing? He's just being a witness. He's not changing anyone's heart. He's not changing anyone's behavior. All he's doing is coming forward and he's saying, witness. This is what Jesus is like. This is what he demands of the world. This is what will happen with you. This is what you need to believe. Life in him. So at the end of the day, it may be oppressive, it seems like, but for Paul, at the end of the day, in all his work, he's just a witness. That's all he is. And this is something that it takes an entire church or churches to accomplish. Paul is somebody that had all sorts of support. It really doesn't work if you just have one person running around the world doing this. That's not how Jesus set it up. It takes every person in a church to witness to Jesus this way, to impact the community around them. And we'll talk here in just a second about some changes in our church and uh, a church update and a number of things, but we should keep in mind this truth, that it takes an entire church to pull off any one of these three. Answering the world's accusations, clean conscience, biblical reality, all those things are good and sound and we need them, but if they are enforced by not one let's say 100 people, then people in the community start to say, well, I guess Christians really aren't cannibals. And that's what we need. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. God, we ask you would do this in us. And God, you would help us to, to, uh, to see you as worthy, to get outside of ourselves, and to acknowledge that you've called us, you've saved us, You've designed us to be your witnesses. Lord, would you help us to be faithful witnesses of you that tell our family, that tell our friends, that tell our neighbors, that tell our coworkers, that tell everyone around us how great you are. How great you are. God, that we would, we would do that from a deep-rooted belief in our hearts. We ask this in your name. Amen.